Welcome to the How to Be an Author in Australia podcast. This is a podcast for writers who want to become published authors. We promise to go behind the scenes in the book industry, talking to people who love books just as much as we do. I'm Georgia Richter, and this is my co-host, Claire Miller. Hey, Georgia. Well, I'm sitting here with Georgia Richter, who's the publisher at Fremantle Press. And I'm sitting here with Claire Miller, who is the Marketing and Communications Manager at Fremantle Press. And this is not awkward at all. We're sitting in the children's publisher's office before she comes into work, trying desperately not to have our knees touch as we talk into a multi-directional microphone for the first podcast. I actually feel as if this is a romantic dinner and the microphone (laughs) is the candle. This is what it puts me in mind of. But I think that's a good beginning because this is a podcast about collaborating closely with people, wouldn't you say? It is. I've never quite collaborated this closely with anyone before. But yes, I agree. We do work very closely together. And I guess that's kind of the point of this podcast. We thought that it would be really beneficial to take our own experience and the conversations that we have with writers every day to a broader audience. And the other thing that we thought would be really fun to do is to talk with other passionate people in the industry who love books as much as we do. Mm. We're not going to give you a how to write lesson. I think there's lots of podcasts out there that do that. But what we're trying to do is provide you with interviews that give you an insight into all the different jobs that are happening behind the scenes in the publishing industry. The more you know about that, I think the easier it's going to be to navigate the business side of being a writer. How do you work with authors? How do I work with authors? I read their book for a start. I look at who else might want to read their book, who their audience is, and then I think about how I'm going to get to that audience and how I'm going to help the author reach that audience. So we can do lots of advertising and we can promote the book from the publishing house's perspective, and we do. But we also try and arm the author with as many tools to help them reach the people that might want to buy their book. And we just do our best to make them feel like they're in charge of their author brand, their profile and how they present to the world. And that's a really challenging thing for a lot of authors. A lot of authors would love it if we just took it and did it for them. But it's much more powerful if they bring their own personality and their own set of skills and storytelling skills to the table. So do you love your job, Claire Miller? I do. Yeah. Because I'm thinking that every author is a different person, right? So you must have to be adaptive. But it sounds as if you're saying that there are a set of things that authors can learn and a set of tools that they can take with them as they promote themselves. I definitely think you can learn to promote yourself better. There are lots of things that you can do to arm yourself to go out there and promote your book better. And that's not going out there and beating your chest and saying, I'm the best author in the world and my book's the best book in the world. It's about making real connections with other human beings. It's really similar to what you do in your book. You're trying to write a story that people enjoy reading and that people relate to. And it's exactly the same when you're doing your marketing communications, you're trying to create connection and empathy and a sense of solidarity um, between yourself and other people. All right. It's my turn to ask you, what do you do at Fremantle Press? On my business card, 
it says I am publisher. In reality, what that means is that I look at all the manuscripts that come in for fiction and for narrative nonfiction and for poetry titles, and I select what I am excited by and that I think will work on our list. I contract those writers and I more often than not also work with them as their editor in bringing their books to publication. In a past life, I have been a creative writing teacher and I've also taught editing and so forth. And I have this great love of teaching and learning and looking at manuscripts from all angles. And one of the really satisfying things about my job is talking to new writers and writers who have questions about the process and who have questions about how does one go from being a writer to being an author. And the thing that I'm really excited about with this podcast is the chance to have those conversations with a much wider audience. Hi, my name is Meg McKinley, and I'm one of the authors who contributed to the book How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia. My most recent book is Bella and the Voyaging House. Today, I'm providing you with my best tip for aspiring writers, and it's this. No matter how long or winding or potholed your path to publication is, try to stay connected to the reason you set out in the first place. And if you're not sure what that reason is, Try and work it out. Have a frank conversation with yourself because it's important to keep that front of mind so you can keep the faith and so you can make decisions about deviations that might present themselves along the way. Do you want to get to publication? Just publication at all costs or is it about a particular book, a particular kind of book, some deep expression of yourself, something, a voice or an idea? Being clear-sighted about what you want and why will help you to navigate this path with purpose and possibly even patience, and you are likely to need both. So give that some serious thought and good luck. Let's talk about the book. It's called How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia. It treats being an author a bit like a small business. It's the kind of manual you want by your side when you want to become a published author, I reckon. I also like the fact that it's not just one voice talking because we did invite a whole bunch of authors to contribute as well. So not only do you get the publisher's advice and the creative writing teacher's advice, but you get to hear from authors as well. My very favourite question that I put to writers was, what do you know now about being a writer that you wish you'd known before? Yeah, I also really love Deborah Hun's advice about starting a writing group and finding your kind of writing tribe or your posse. I thought that was really amazing as well, those tips. And look, speaking of posses, Claire, the, the other thing that writers can do is to join our Facebook group, which is called How to Be an Author in Australia, for a chance to chat with the contributors to this book and to each other. And I've actually invited some of the people that contributed to the book to be guest moderators. So each month it'll be a different topic and then you'll have an amazing author there to kind of pick the brains of brain picking recommended on the Facebook group. I was worried because you just ended a sentence with a preposition there. I saw your alarm exactly. and picked it up. Nice work. Look, the other the other thing that I'm really looking forward to in this podcast is zooming up the comma chameleon. I, I did see her in the office earlier and 
I understand she's prepared a little quiz for us, uh, something quirky that she's cooked up in her exacting brain. From brain picking to brain freezing for me, I think. I'm absolutely terrified about this quiz that she's got together. I'm already kind of scared of her because each time I put marketing copy her way, she um, gives me a very strong semi-colonoscopy as well. Uh, Well, look, aside from the comma chameleon, shall we have a chat about who our first guest for this podcast is? Yeah, I thought it would be good to talk to a book designer about what they do when they design a cover. It's something that authors ask us about a lot and it's something that they often have really strong opinions about as well. Well, so I've got to ask what you think of the saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. You can. (laughs) (laughs) The book cover is your biggest marketing tool and I think you should be able to judge the contents of your book from the cover and I think it should signify to booksellers where they're going to put that book on the shelf and to readers what kind of book it is. And, of course, it just has to be so attractive that people can't resist picking it up. Actually, the book that we've been working on right now is a great example of of what we have to do and what we have to go through. And of course, as you know, I'm talking about the design for our collection of essays, Women of a Certain Rage, in which women talk about the kinds of things that make them angry. So it's a great collection. But can you remember how many designs that Nada did It's like dozens, like... We couldn't fit them in a bulldog clip. Doesn't it? <laughs> I think that's right. So it looks like a box full. <laughs> Poor it, Nada. It was an easy box full. I, th- I think now's a great time to get Nada on Zoom so we can ask her how working on this brief was from her perspective. Sounds good. Nada Bakovic is a book designer, graphic designer and illustrator with over 20 years' experience working within publishing in Australia and the UK. She now runs her own business in Sydney, freelancing for a variety of publishers. Hello, Nada. Hi, how are you? Welcome. We just wanted to start by getting the enraged elephant out of the room and talk about women of a certain rage because that cover... Look at you rolling your eyes. That cover, I mean, how many covers have we had? I do have somebody usually working behind me and every time he turns around, there's a different cover with the same (laughs) title. And so he's been marvelling at how many we've done. It's been a really interesting process and we felt excessively terrible, I think, as, as we kept going back to you. And it made me think a lot about what is it actually like for you as a designer working with a client and how does how does the process work? It was not the worst cover I've worked on, believe me. I have had much, much, much worse. <laughs> um, in fact, I just took that one in my stride um, because sometimes that is the process of getting to the final cover. You have to make those mistakes and, and uh, see what you don't want before you can actually see what you do want. I think it has been about six rounds and every time you you probably seem to produce about eight or so covers, all quite different, very impressive, but it, it helped us see what we weren't getting right yet. I guess my question is something about how do you negotiate the space between creativity and what a client wants when you're designing a book cover? Well, I think generally speaking with uh, a good brief, you won't have been prescriptive in this first place and and I don't think you ever are I appreciate direction that tells me where you want to end up otherwise I will be clueless so you need to give me that sort of direction as to where you want to go and that is always useful I think to a designer um, because I have to know what your end goal is 
What is really hard sometimes is somebody might come to me and say, we want a picture of a woman on a cover holding a flower with a, this in the background and be entirely prescriptive. And I just say, no, I can't do that. I can't ever match what you're imagining in your head. So I think your briefs are open-ended enough to allow for that creativity. Are you reading just what's in the brief? I think it's really important to get a sense of what the book's about, uh, whether it means reading extract, whether it means reading a whole thing, uh, and a strong sense of what the book's about in order to translate that onto the cover. So yeah. it's not just what, what you say in a brief, it's, it's getting the mood and the tone. It needs to reflect the content. See, I really struggle with that as a marketer, I think. We get hung up on, is this accurate to the content? Whereas I think that you saying you, it should reflect a mood or the essence of the book is quite good. I think, you know, the authors are very close to the content. And so, you know, when I work directly with them, there might be a tendency for them to picture a scene in their head because it's so very close to them. But you need that degree of separation in order to come across to a broader audience and hopefully convey enough of the content to to give you a sense of what it's about. Now, when you're working directly with an author, that must call on a different part of yourself in in a sense to negotiate the terrain because you must have a sense of where a a jacket perhaps needs to go versus an author's internal vision. So you're not only designing something, but you're negotiating with a human being and expectations. How do you manage that? Sometimes it can be difficult, but I think uh, most people who come to me trust that I'm going to give them the results that they want. So right at the beginning, I take those expectations and I, I shut them down, really, and I say you need to be a little bit more open with allowing me to, to experiment. By all means, give me direction as to where you, wanna, where you want the book to end up, but try not to dictate what the end product will be. I think what was really interesting about the the women of a certain rage cover was in our minds it began as needing to have an element of rage on the front. When you gave us rage as requested... Didn't work. Didn't work and there was too much rage. Yeah, and also like we do a lot of research behind the scenes on other covers and also what we like and don't like to try and as part of the direction and we did it with this book and we end up enraged by the images of women you put in to Google like an angry woman and they look insane or they are having a really bad hair day or all sorts of stuff. And we ended up quite angry at the end of this process and disheartened by what kind of images were out there. Well, that's right. I mean, I come across that every day. A lot of books I do do happen to have women on them, you know, historical fiction or women's fiction in general. And so I had to research a lot of images of women and I get crazy at how few of them have clothes on when I'm trying to research for a normal-looking woman to put on a cover. So there's all kinds of um, stereotypes out there, yeah, for sure. So many headless women. (laughs) Yes. It's like we want to put a woman on, we don't want to be too defined about who the woman is, so we'll just take the head out. So better not to have a woman at all, perhaps, yeah. Mm. Do do you keep an eye on who's designing what around you? I think I probably absorb most of my inspiration from all sorts of things. It's not just books. You know, those trends tend to follow along in mainstream design as well. I think it's important to to know what's going on, but not necessarily to be dictated to 
by what's going on and to keep trying to create the best possible cover for that particular book. How did it work when you were at Allen and Unwin? Very similar. The, the processes were more or less the same, and I think they probably would be across the board. Uh, when it comes to self-publishers, they usually get a bunch of friends to comment, which may or may not be useful unless they're, they're in the... Um, the right cross-section of people that you need to have the opinion from. So, Nada, thinking about an author, if you're thinking about a self-published author, what would be your advice to them as a book designer? To really understand what they are trying to achieve, to not be prescriptive about the outcome. So when I say what they're trying to achieve, I think they need to be thinking about uh, where does their book sit among others in the marketplace? Who are they comparable to? I do suggest they look at other book covers. I also suggest that they don't limit picture research to just low-cost images because that can be quite stifling. Um, But I think the clearest thing they need to have is a good brief and and I'm always happy to help them work on that brief and I try to give them guidance as to what I need to know in order to give them the best outcome. And do you go into bookstores and start face-outing your designs? I look at other people's stuff, to be honest. I don't oh, like okay. my own stuff. It's a bit like looking looking at watching yourself on TV. But um, uh, I love browsing bookshops, yes, of course. And uh, I'm looking at the surfaces and, and uh, the finishes and the colours. And uh, So in your, in your view, what are the sort of elements of a successful cover? When you look at one, you think, oh, that's working. Why? What are those elements that work? At the end of the day, what's going to work about it's going to be the appeal. We're all trying to make people pick it up. It's got to be attractive. It should give you, it should kind of evoke some sort of emotion, I think, you know, a response that would entice you to buy it. The right tone and the right message to match the content. And, you know, we all say um, we shouldn't judge a book by cover, but we all do, of course. And uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to make you interested in this book. And, and possibly something that you wouldn't mind putting on your wall, like as a, as a showpiece, as a piece of art. It's interesting, though. I think sometimes when I'm seeing a range coming through from a designer, the ones that work have a certain kind of energy as well. So I'm thinking of something like Small Steps, the Physio in Ethiopia memoir that you did for us, and the jacket that worked eventually you put literally small steps on the cover and they led up to some feet, so we look. At, we were looking up to feet, whereas in other other versions of what you'd done, we were looking across at or down at feet. And there was something about the energy that appeared when you actually put steps that then interacted with the title. And there was a whole series of things going on in that interaction between the title and the image that made us go, "Oh, there it is. There's the cover." That is true. So a harmony between the title and the image. The image needs to complement the type uh, and not compete with it, you know, uh, to create an overall harmony there as well. And I tend to try and step away from it a little bit to be quite instinctive about how I respond to what's working, what's not. What are some of your favourite covers that you just still love? A lot of stuff I've done years ago is still in print. Things like Kokoda by Peter Fitzsimmons. I did an earlier 
cover for Natasha Lester, which I still really love, uh, a kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald. It was, it was nice because I got an opportunity to do something a little bit different on a women commercial fiction from what I usually do. So I still love that one. Red Can Origami, I do love. Uh, I've just done a new one for a self-publisher, which is my current favourite called Unique Beautiful Faces. Uh, it sparked off a little bit of a, an illustration style for me, which I'm working on at the moment. I think I'm really, 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 really lucky to have a job that I still love. Yes, very, very fortunate. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Nala. It's been really good to talk to you. That was great talking to Nada. I just love hearing about the process from her side of the fence. Yeah, look, as a word person, I can't believe how much visual creativity and stamina that a designer needs to keep coming up with such variety. Uh, what's that music? Claire, I think it means that it's time for the comma chameleon. What foul facts do you think that she's hoovered up from the editor's cutting room floor? Well, I think... <laughs> before we find out, and I am quite terrified, I think that we better clarify that the comma chameleon is Armel Davies, who is our editor at Fremantle Press. Welcome to the podcast, Armel. Hello. Thank you. I've been waiting for this quiz. No one's allowed me to prepare and, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I'm quite worried. Tell <laughs> it, what is it about? All right. Well, as a word nerd... I love learning about etymology, which is the study of where words come from. It's so fascinating to me to hear about what other languages our words come from, how language develops over time and why. Um, and most of us use words without really thinking too deeply about what they mean beyond their most direct definitions. So I thought it might be fun to have a look at some words and their roots where they're not necessarily so obvious so are you ready for the question? Okay. Uh, uh, you lost me at entomology. Entomology is different. That's the study of insects, Claire. Come on, keep up. We do All have right, a book, Backyard go. Birds, coming up. No bugs. <laughs> okay, go on. Sock it to us. All right. Each of these words contains a prefix or suffix that is easily recognisable, but their stem words are not so familiar. Which of these stem words is not a real word, or at least is so obsolete that it's not recognised by the Macquarie Dictionary? Our options are A, ruthless, B, overwhelm, or C, preempt. Excellent. So you're asking us whether Ruth, whelm, or empt are actually real words or not real words. That's right. Yes. One of these words is so obsolete or maybe it never even existed, that it's not in the dictionary. Can I have a go? Yeah. What's your logic around this answer that you're going to give? Well, I reckon that whelm and empt probably come from somewhere. I'm going with Ruth for no mm. good reason, actually. Mm. Come on, Claire, put your, put your money on one of those horses. I like the idea that whelm ex exists on its own. And actually, this is just, I like the idea that Ruth exists on her own as well. Um, so I'm going to go with empt. Just because who wants to talk about emptying? I don't know. <laughs> I think you might be emptying the comma chameleon's answer. Okay, go on. Tell us. Mm, well, indeed, the correct answer is Claire's answer, empt. <laughs> 
Yeah. So empt, uh, the other two are real words. So Ruth comes from the same root as rue. So oh. I rue the day. I was filled with Ruth at the death of poor Daisy, for example. Um, and whelm is actually the original meaning of the word overwhelm. So overwhelm is kind of a tautology because whelm means to be overcome. So overwhelm means over overcome. And then empt, um, it's sort of hard to trace the roots, but it seems like it may have been a real word at some stage. Um, and it comes from the word emption, which in turn is from the Latin emere. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I haven't studied Latin, unfortunately. Um, which means to buy or take. So preemption was the act of purchasing something before anyone else had had the opportunity. Wow. So are you saying that if you get a manuscript and somebody uses the word overwhelm in it, you're going to be like, nah, I'm going to whelm it, not overwhelm it. (laughs) Well, you see, this is all part of being the comma chameleon because the word overwhelm, actually overtook the popularity of whelm in common usage. So it eventually became uh, the accepted word. And I kind of like to think of it um, like people using the word literally today when they really mean truly or really or something like that. And although that might seem very wrong to us as editors now because it seems like it's not the, you know, quote-unquote correct usage of the word, perhaps eventually it will be common enough that the meaning of the word will change. And as editors, we have to accept those changes because um, language changes its colours over time, just like a chameleon. (laughs) (laughs) Is there like an era, like if someone's writing historical fiction, is there like an era where somebody should use the word whelm? For me and Georgia, one of our favourite tools for editing is Google's Ngram Viewer, which tracks uh, the usage of words over time. They've scanned books throughout history and they've scanned the words in so you can track how they were used as a percentage of all the words used in all the books of that time. And so I did try to look up Whelm and it seems to have peaked in usage in about 1807 and declined steadily since then. I think you should stick the word uberwhelm into Ngram Viewer and see if it's arrived yet. Mm, I think that's that what... would be an even better word. <laughs> that, I'm predicting that's that's coming soon. But I, yeah. do you know what my favourite my favorite and very surprising word that I Googled in Ngram Viewer was fake news. Oh. So you would think, well, what I thought I would see was a flat line and then a, a recent spike, mm. right? But... There was, in fact, a spike around the time and just after the Second World War as well when fake news was being used a lot in literature, books, etc. I guess it just shows that in times of crisis it's bandied about. I like actually, Comma Chameleon, how you've just exposed the two sides of the uh, the editorial nature as well, that an editor has to sort of lean into language and be quite loose at the same time as being exacting. Yeah, it's a fine line and it means that as an editor you really can't sort of rest on your laurels. You have to keep up to date with how language use is changing all the time. Thanks, Comma Chameleon, for putting the relevance back into obsolescence. 
thank you very much. <laughs> Are you keeping score? Because I'm, I'm just going to say again that one nil. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We definitely will keep track of that for next time. I'm counting on you, Georgia. She, she's emptying her next vic- victory, but uh, I'm going to be really Ruth <laughs> next time round. <laughs> we look forward to that. See you, comma. Bye. See ya. That was great. I can't wait to see what the comma chameleon comes up with next time. I can definitely wait. Well, apart from the comma chameleon, Claire, who are we going to be talking to next time? Next time we're going back to the beginning and we're going to have a chat to Deborah Hun, who is your co-author of the book. And Deborah has been teaching and lecturing in creative writing for 25 years and she's really going to have a good in-depth chat about her role as a creative writing teacher, about what it's like to mentor new writers, as well as how to find your own writing tribe and make the most of working with your peers. And I think I'll ask her some questions about how to set up a workshop group too. So tune in next time to find out tips for brand new writers. It was great to have you with us today on the How to Be an Author podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite app so you never miss an episode. To discuss anything raised on today's podcast, join us on the How to Be an Author in Australia Facebook group. You'll be able to discuss the ins and outs of writing with other writers and with us, along with many of the contributors to the book Georgia wrote with Deborah Hun. How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia is available from freemantlepress.com.au and at all good bookstores. See you next time.